0: Hello, everyone. This is your host, Brandi Williamson. I am a birth and postpartum mental performance coach. I've designed this podcast to offer you a unique combination of performance psychology principles and faith-based insights to support you along your journey of motherhood every step of the way. Welcome back to mom material. the most amazing but challenging experience of my life so far and that's why I wanted to start mom material I want to have a real and authentic conversation about motherhood I want to share candid conversations about struggles and joys because it's so hard to find that since everything seems so manicured and edited nothing feels relatable or informational anymore so let me share a story that happened to me yesterday with you all If you've been listening to this podcast, you'll know in earlier episodes, I had an existential breakdown moving from Texas to our new home in Missouri, which I'm mostly over. Everyone told me how I would lose all this hair postpartum, and of course, I refuse to believe that, feeling like I'm some sort of exception to the rule. Well, turns out you really do lose your hair. I can't confirm if it's mainly due to postpartum hormones or my lack of brushing it. But when I do brush my hair, it comes out in clumps. So I was over having this nasty dry hair. And before we went home to my parents' house this Thursday for Thanksgiving, I just wanted to get it cut here and get it out of the way with. And honestly, I could care less about my hair. I really only get it cut like once or twice a year. And I've never had it dyed. Probably because I'm too lazy to keep up with it. And I'd honestly rather spend my money on like Chick-fil-A biscuits or coffee or something but I've been going to my best friend's mom for the past forever, it seems like, and I essentially get the same thing done. The basic trim and the trimming of my bangs. Even when I finally left Lisa and moved out to Texas to find someone else to do my hair, they were like, oh yeah, that sounds great. We can definitely do that for you after I told them what I wanted. Well, I already wasn't hopeful about my options in Missouri. No offense, Missouri. There's literally nothing here where I'm at. But I did get on Google and I found a place with good reviews. So I pack Isaac up and I head that way on Monday afternoon. And I get to this place. I'm like, okay, you know, like this seems nice. So I'm hopeful. But I had this like inner feeling that something would go wrong. So I go inside and get introduced to the lady who would cut my hair. First red flag should have been her chopped up hair in a tiny ponytail, not looking like any other hairstylist I've ever come in contact with who, you know, like dress up and uh I don't know do their hair, which makes sense because that's their whole business. So I'm telling myself, "Nope, okay, you're being rude. Stop. Like stop thinking about this and rationalizing my doubts away." Well, the second red flag should have gone off when I told her what I wanted, and she looked at me with like some sort of skepticism, like I was crazy. And I mean, physically gather the strands to show her and tell her what other people did. And I'm like, I don't know. They just cut it this way. Like, I, you're the expert here, not me. She's like, okay, but just so you know, once I cut it, it's gone. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's why I'm here. I should have backed out. I really should have just left. I should have maybe just had her trim the bottom and just like split out of there. But I don't know, I had this hope that it would all, like, come together at the end. Well, not to mention, this was the longest haircut of my life. Another indication I could have just stopped while I was ahead. Well, when I told her about the trimming of the hairs around my face, she proceeded to literally chop both sides of the hairs next to my ears, leaving me looking like Lord Farquaad with a front mullet. I literally couldn't get out of there fast enough to get to the car to assess the damage. I started bawling my eyes out because of how terrible it was and how bad I looked. I was embarrassed. I'm wondering what Justin would think, how other people are going to look at me now, if it's even possible to hide something like this, and also just how stupid I felt for even letting this happen when I could have just waited till like Christmas to go back home and have Lisa cut my hair. Well... I got home finally, and Justin reassured me it wasn't that bad and I looked fine, but I started crying again. I knew he was just trying to make me feel better, but I was so annoyed even that I was so emotional over this. I didn't want it to be as big of a deal as it was. Something so silly and trivial as getting a bad haircut affecting my whole day. It consumed my thoughts, my attention, my mood, my conversations. After a little bit of time had passed in my emotions lesson, I started to think about what it is or what it was that impacted me so much about this. And it's because of my ego. The Oxford Dictionary defines ego as a person's sense of self-esteem or importance. Erik Erikson is a popular German-American psychoanalyst who writes extensively about the importance of the ego being the very center of personal development, means for continuity in a person's life, and how it actually possesses a somewhat protective factor despite any life change or circumstantial change. Erikson hones into this more in the adolescent stage of his psychosocial theory of development. Within this theory, each stage has a crisis that needs resolution in order for a successful outcome and developmental progression to take place. Specifically in the adolescent stage, ranging from 12 to 24 years now, Erickson theorizes people become more self-aware of their standing in the world and start to question who they are and how they fit in. The basic conflict in this stage involves identity versus role confusion. People compare themselves to their peers and start to develop a sense of what value they bring to society. Erickson argues identity is so crucial because it gives a person their motivation, purpose, and direction in life. He also proposed that identity is fixed in this stage. Although I disagree with a lot about Erickson's theory, I inherently know he's onto something. People have been conditioned by society and experiences to believe in order to be loved they have to fill in the blank, perform, do. I also grew up with this worldview, getting praise for good grades and athletic achievements or ignored or looked over because I wasn't enough, smart enough, funny enough, pretty enough. Quickly, I learned how to shape my interests and identity off of validation from my parents, coaches, friends, and peers. I also grew up with this worldview. However, Anyone who has lived this life knows it's exhausting, and you are never enough. I've seen very few people in my life break out of this mold, and when someone does, you remember it. I mean, haven't you encountered this countercultural person who seems to have some unshakable confidence or incredible authenticity about them? I mean, is it even possible to live in a way that you're not shackled to the opinions and expectations from the people around you? Well, to answer this question, I like to look at Apostle Paul's life in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 21 through chapter 4 verse 7. Paul writes, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God." This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust most prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Timothy Keller, an amazing pastor, theologian, and Christian apologist, who is now with God, has a tiny book on humility called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He addresses what makes the heart of someone who has been changed by the grace of God as it relates to Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians. In verse 6, Keller notes that instead of using the normal Greek word hubris, he uses physio, meaning overinflated, swollen, or distended beyond its proper size. He uses this to describe the natural condition of the human ego, which is empty, painful, busy, and fragile. Empty because it's filled with nothing. Painful because the ego is constantly drawing attention to itself, like that of an injured body part. Busy because the ego constantly compares or boasts, and fragile because the ego constantly seeks validation. You'll see in 1 Corinthians, Paul cares very little about what others think of him, and he cares very little about his own opinions of himself. Timothy Keller notes the word judge has the same meaning as verdict. How do we live with this transformed view of our own self? In today's world, so many people are depressed and anxious and unhappy. People constantly talk about getting their feelings hurt, how they're not worthy, and the rest, while others compliment them or say it doesn't matter about what anyone else thinks but yourself. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about humility. He says, That is not thinking more or less about myself, but thinking about myself less. I love this quote for today because it's not just the people with this superiority complex that are prideful. It's also the people with an inferiority obsession. They both share something in common. They constantly focus on themselves. Just think in your own life of people, friends, or family who constantly find fault in themselves, always are pessimistic about their life, and telling everyone they are the victim. It's because they are constantly focused on themselves. People feel obligated to compliment these people, but inflating a deflated ego is not the solution either because it still leaves these people dependent on others for validation and worth. Perhaps it's moving away from self, like C.S. Lewis mentioned, that brings true joy to a person's life. Humility allows us to not connect everything with ourself. Keller proposes this gospel humility creates a way to have the freedom of actually forgetting about yourself. But how do we attain this gospel humility? Because when I think about it, being told to not think of yourself sounds like telling someone to not think about the pink elephant. What pops in your mind? The pink elephant. So it's almost impossible just to try hard not to do something. Keller points out that this transformed view of self is so obviously portrayed in Paul's writing, not even because he doesn't care about what others think or what he thinks of himself, but because he knows the only verdict, the only judge that truly matters is God. With faith in Christ, Paul does not have to perform for validation, but his validation from Christ's death and resurrection allows him to be bold and confident, not the least bit burdened by the public opinion or even his own inner critic. Paul realizes there's no more trial to be had, no more courtroom to stand in before the judge. It's not even about being a good enough person, like some might think, or keeping all the rules like some religions might have you do. Paul realizes it's because Jesus already went to the courtroom and faced the trial. We don't have to. He did not have to do that every day anymore. Do you feel the need to validate yourself through comparison or boasting? What do you have or not have that feeds your ego? What would it look like if these things that feed your self-esteem were gone? Hair, beauty, health, job, money, rank, social standing, children, family, fill in the blank. I believe this freedom of self-forgetfulness is not something reserved just for Paul Ben, but also for us now. We don't have to live in prison to our ego. In fact, Erickson was wrong that your identity is solidified in adolescence. Research shows it can change. So even if your identity was defined in the past, it can be changed now. Through Jesus, we know we can be loved without even doing or performing, but just by being. We don't have to constantly talk about our accomplishments or our sins or regrets. The trial is closed. We get the freedom to do something for the intrinsic value or joy of doing it. After being reminded of the joys of knowing Christ, I almost felt embarrassed that I even cared so much about the way that I looked in the first place. The world constantly tells you what you need, what you should look like, how your worth is tied to your accomplishments, but it's not true. I don't need to put myself in the courtroom every time I look in the mirror, and I hope you've gotten a new perspective today that you don't either. My mission is to provide support, insight, and a sense of community for moms from all over the world. If this podcast is adding value to your life Go ahead and like and review the podcast so other people can find us. Thanks for listening.